in chapter 37 and uh, showed that he was a favorite of his father Jacob. Uh, the, the primary reason, I think, for that favoritism was that of Jacob's wives, Rachel was his very favorite, his first love, and uh, that, I'm sure, was the primary reason that it carried over to his sons, Joseph and Benjamin, because they were the two sons of Rachel. Well, the favoritism toward the one wife created a great deal of enmity, jealousy, and animosity, and fights among the women. And then we found that that favoritism also caused a great deal of fighting among the brothers later on. So, <clears throat> favoritism can create problems, and yet we will find that God has his favorites as well. And that can also create problems among men. Christ had his favorite among the disciples who became apostles. John was clearly the favorite. He wasn't the one that he put in charge. He put Peter in charge because Peter had more of the leadership qualities that were needed to actually lead and head the church. But John had a temperament and a personality and a love for people uh, that appealed a great deal to Christ. So he set aside his personal feelings there to get the right leadership in charge. Uh, so Peter was the kind of a hell-bent-for-leather type of a guy who would get out and get things done, but he probably wasn't quite as loving as John was in some respects. So God can use different people for different jobs and reasons. But then we saw an interjected chapter in chapter 38, which is not a part of the story of Joseph at all, and it told the story of Judah and of Tamar uh, with the birth eventually then of Perez, who was to be uh, that part of Judah which would create the line of Christ. Uh, that was the, probably the main reason for chapter 38 being interjected here, because it, it fits in where the story of Joseph goes in a timeline but it was important for God to establish the line of Christ because it would come through Tamar and Therese. So then, at the end of that chapter, we pick it up again with the story of Joseph. Uh, the story of Joseph, to me, is actually quite fascinating, and I think a lot of it parallels a lot of our experiences in the church. Uh, it, ex it parallels some of our experiences and our, our personality as a nation. Because here God begins to open up Israel. See, it's come down. Abraham had promises. Isaac had promises. Jacob had promises. And now the story begins to widen out with Jacob having 12 sons who would become 12 tribes of Israel. But of those 12 tribes, God chose to work first through Joseph. And here at the end time, he is also working primarily through Joseph, particularly Ephraim, and we'll get to that later on. But it widens out, and yet God selects one of those 12 sons to be the leader, to do the job that has to be done, to be the primary one. Now, Levi later on would have a job as the priesthood. Judah would, uh, bringing forth the line of Christ. But as far as national prowess, as far as leadership in 
a Gentile world of Israel. It came through Joseph. And we'll see a lot of the characteristics of Joseph here that are good things that we tend to have as a people. And if he began with Joseph, he is ending the thing with Joseph as well. Well, ending this age, but even when it opens up in the world tomorrow, he is going to work through Ephraim and Judah. Ezekiel even talks about the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah being brought together. <clears throat> anyway, let's pick up the story in chapter 39. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Now, his brothers had conspired to kill him. Uh, they had instead decided to sell him and told their dad that uh, here's his coat if you recognize it and left it that way so his dad would think that he had been killed and brought a great deal of grief upon Jacob. Uh, so that's where the story had left off before. Now, Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him off the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down there. So he was sold to one of the leaders in Pharaoh's government, captain of the guard. So here he was, an abject slave, taken from being a favored son, almost killed by his brothers, known that he was hated by all of them with a purple passion, sold to these Gentiles, loaded on a donkey or a camel, probably tied on with manacles, and hauled to Egypt where he was sold to an Egyptian. Now that would just kind of turn your world upside down, wouldn't it? This would not have been a fun experience. Well, the nations of Joseph, Great Britain, the United States, are about to be sold into slavery again. So the story is parallel from the very beginning here. And having even other nations of Israel today, the brothers of Great Britain and the United States even more in particular, been jealous of us, the wealth, the blessings that we have had. Uh, there are some of the tribes of Israel that hate us almost as much as the Gentiles do. I noticed that on a trip to France back in the late 60s. Uh, if we were recognized as Americans, we were basically despised and treated with disdain by the French. They just don't like us. I don't think they like themselves, but that's a different deal. They just have an attitude. I mean, I'm speaking in general. Well, that's not true of everybody there, and it isn't true all the time, of course, but uh, there are attitudes that are national. Now, things would have looked pretty bleak. Put yourself in Joseph's position. Here, I've just been sent away and sold. Looks bad. And the Eternal was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Eternal was with him, and that the Eternal had made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So what looked like probably to Joseph is absolute punishment and bottom of the barrel, where do I go from here? I had a fine home with my father, and now I'm down here serving this Egyptian Things are looking really bad for me. But he had an indomitable attitude. He had an attitude of, however bad things are, I'm going to make the best of it. He was irrepressible. Uh, if you remember the movie Sound of Music and the, uh, the song by the nun sang about how do you solve a problem like Maria, 
a flibberty gibbet, a clown, a will-o'-the-wisp, and so on it went. She was just the kind that always rose above things. She could handle whatever came along and have a good attitude about it and make it work. So Joseph had that same type of personality. When the tough gets going, or the going gets tough, the tough get going, we could use many different phrases here to describe the way he was. And America has been that way to a great degree, has it not? When it comes time for war, when things look bad, we have risen above it. When things have been bleak, we've found a way around it. we found a way to come out on top. Now it's being perverted and twisted and misused uh, today, and we've become a very ungodly nation. But by dint of personality, I think you could look at this nation uh, heretofore and say that it has been the kind of personality in many respects that Joseph had. So those genes, those uh, capabilities, and those attitudes have been passed down to a degree to us. So he began to prosper, and even his master saw that he was an unusual human being. Of course, it wasn't all Joseph, because God obviously was with him, and I suppose that somehow Joseph had made Potiphar aware that he was a worshiper of God, not of crocodiles and snakes and flies and the gods of Egypt, and did things a certain way. <clears throat> so even his master attributed it to his God. But Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. He didn't say, well, I'm a slave and I'll do what you say, but I don't like it. No, he had an attitude of, this is the position I'm in, I'll do the very best I can with it. So he served him in attitude, not just in pass the cup, but in attitude. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him an overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. Now, he was 17 when he was sent to Egypt. We don't know the exact time frame here and how long he was. Uh, there before other events came down, but he was quite young when he was there, and it might have been a matter of a few years that he was with Potiphar. I don't know. It doesn't say. It might have been just a few months. But the, the young fellow had such an incredible attitude and was so willing to serve and give and help and do that he not only put the household in his hand, but everything that he had he put under Joseph because he knew it would be taken care of, it would be handled, he would be responsible, Anything that he had for him to do, it would get done and done well. And everything would prosper in Joseph's hands. Well, you got somebody around like that, you here, you can do it, you can do it well, why should I worry with it? You take over, you, ta you handle it, you do it. Boy, if we could all be that way with God, wouldn't it be incredible? Instead of whining and complaining and backing off and being lazy and and not wanting to do, and so on, is, which we all as human beings go through at times. Now, he had his ups and downs, I'm sure, <clears throat> but the personality was such that he was going to find a way to get done whatever his master wanted, and it would be done cheerfully, willingly, helpfully, and in an attitude of service. Remember we said something, I think, in chapter 37 about when his dad said, go check on your brothers, he says, here I am. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. 
Well, that attitude is carrying on even in slavery. <clears throat> How many people respond that way to slavery? Not very many. Now, we have the most benevolent slave owner on earth, I mean, in the universe. We have become willing slaves to our Savior. He died for us, purchased us with his blood, and we have dedicated ourselves to be his slaves, to be his servants. But sometimes we want our way. We don't want his way. And our, our bodies, our minds, our emotions rebel against what he wants done and what he would have us do. But that's something you have to fight and change and overcome so that we become as Joseph was. God chose Joseph for reasons. And he wants those same attitudes and attributes in us today because we represent Joseph today. And there is an end-time work that has to be done within Joseph for the whole world. So we are the slaves now in the hands of Emmanuel to do his bidding with love, with readiness of mind, with willingness, with happiness, to make anything that comes along work, no matter how grim it might seem. And sometimes they can seem pretty grim. And it came to pass, verse 5, from the time that he may, had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Eternal blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. You, you know, if you're, you're Potiphar, and things start going better and better and better, and you see that it's a result of Joseph, this is a good thing. You like it. And the blessing of the Eternal was upon all he had in the house and in the field. Things just got better everywhere for Potiphar. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. The man prospered so much with Joseph as his slave governor that he didn't even keep track of his accounts. He was just so wealthy, so well off, everything was going so well, that, hey, why should I bother counting things? Why should I bother knowing what I have? I got plenty, and I have a whole lot more than I did, and this young fellow is the reason. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. He had a good ability to work with people, to work with the other slaves, with the other hirelings, with the other people, and interfaced with uh, probably those outside the family and doing business for Potiphar. Uh, he just had the kind of personality that was capable, uh, willing, uh, and good people skills, very obviously. So he was a goodly person and well-favored. He didn't go around with a sour attitude. He didn't go around inwardly selfish and not being outgoing. Uh, to do the job that he did, you have to be an outgoing, giving, loving, kind, gentle person who can handle people properly. Otherwise, you won't accomplish what he accomplished. He handled people in such a way that they were well disposed toward him. He was well favored. And he just had a pleasant outlook on life. 
And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. Well, this is kind of a natural reaction. He was the kind of person that he was. I would suspect that she was considerably older than him, what we'd call a cougar today. But uh, here was this young man who was favored of God and had a great personality and he was probably good looking. And uh, he had good people skills with others, so his skills with others were noted by Potiphar's wife. So she looked upon him and uh, wanted what she saw. So she approached him and said, let's go lay down. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, my master doesn't know what it is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. I'm a person that he's put in charge, and I'm responsible for everything that he has. She knew that, but he reminded her. But he was explaining his position. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. He's, anything the man has, I can have, except you, because you are his wife. And I can't do that. It's just the way that it is. Uh, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph, even as a young man, had a very strong sense of God and his ways and what God would want. And I suspect he was tempted too. He was a young man with his hormones running and very interested in girls and women, I'm sure. He had that kind of drive and energy and personality. So there was interest there. She was probably a pretty good-looking woman, I would assume, too, because Potiphar was a man that was high in the government and had his pick among women. So I suspect he picked out a pretty nice-looking one. But whatever his feelings were, his desires, his emotions and drives, uh, he was not going to give in and do a great wickedness and sin against God. And it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, she tried to wear him down every day. Hey, come on. Uh, she probably dressed very seductively. She probably wore some very nice perfumes. She was doing everything she could to seduce Joseph because she had had this lust grow inside her, and she was going to make sure that this happened. It was a great and powerful desire she had for him. So every day, on and on, she was after him. <clears throat> Spoke to him day by day that he hearkened not to her to lie by her or to be with her. So he wouldn't lay down with her, and I don't know whether it's speaking sexually to be with her there or even to be around her. He was probably trying to avoid her. There is a scripture in Corinthians that says, flee fornication, stay away from those circumstances that would cause it to happen, to give yourself the opportunity. So it may be that he was trying to avoid her. I'm sure that he was, because she was after him, and it probably got pretty sticky. It came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. Uh-oh. This could get sticky here. <clears throat> she caught him by his garment. She didn't just ask this time. She grabbed him by the clothes, saying, Lie with me. She's getting pretty aggressive here. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now, I don't know how well his garment was sewn or just what he was wearing, uh, but uh, she got hold of it hard enough that when he took off, the garment ripped and stayed with her, and he ran out naked. Or uh, he may have had underclothes on, I don't know, but his, his main garment was gone. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called to the men of her house. Okay, here's a woman scorned. When a woman sets her eye on you and you turn her down, she gets that way. That's just the way that it is. That's human nature. That which you wanted so much, you turn against. If you can't have or turn down. Anyway, uh, she called the men of the house and spoke to them, saying, See, he's brought in a Hebrew to us to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. This man was trying to rape me, and I screamed and screamed, and nobody was in the house to hear me. And it came to pass when he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. She, she had something in her hand which she used to try to prove that her story was correct. So she was a liar as well as a seductress. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. She spoke to him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant, probably spit that out with contempt, uh, which you have brought to us came to me to mock me, to misuse me, to abuse me, and then to laugh at me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. So she's saying, he took his garment off and was coming after me, and he heard people and ran. It came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, After this manner did your servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. That'd make a husband mad. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. So he got sold as a slave after his brothers despised and hated him and wanted to kill him. He did real well in slavery, responded to his master the way that we have Peter and others in the New Testament telling us we ought to respond to Christ as our master who has bought us and paid for us. So he was a good slave, did well. But then someone conspired against him, tried to seduce him, and when it didn't work out for her, she despised him and hated him, scorned him, and framed him. Now he's sitting in jail. Never, thus far, having done anything wrong. He worshipped God, and every time he turned around, it seemed like things got worse for him, and with his spirit and attitude toward life, he would always make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. He would always make lemonade out of lemons, whatever expression you want to use. But now he's fallen into a great big lemon. Here he is in prison. Verse 21. But the Eternal was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So he's about as bad a circumstance as you think you could be in, but God is with him. Now sometimes when things get bad, 
we might begin to think, well, God isn't with us, or God isn't with me. Or if other people might say, God isn't with them. Look at what's happening with them. Uh, you can't judge by appearances, can you? You can't go by those things. Just what we were seeing in 2 Timothy 3 there in the sermonette, if you read on down a little bit, it talks about how we would have many afflictions and persecutions, trials, troubles, and difficulties as a human being converted and worshiping and serving God. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. So here's Joseph. We're direct descendants of him going through a lot of downers and then God making uppers out of his downers. We're not talking pills here. We're talking conditions. So God showed him mercy even in prison and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He must have had a, an incredibly personality or friendly, persuasive personality uh, in order to do so well wherever he went and God giving him favor as well. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hands all the prisoners that were in the prison, put him in charge of all the prisoners. I don't know how long this took, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Doesn't give details about what kind of things they were, did or were allowed to do in an Egyptian prison, but he was the leader of all the prisoners, all the bad guys, and leading them in a good direction so that things went better in the prison. Now, if you have a prison warden, say, in Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere, and they're cruel. I mean, we've seen movies about them down there. I don't know if they're any worse there than they are in Michigan or Alaska, but, you know, you hear these stories, and they make movies about southern prisons and chain gangs, but uh, the meanness is shown in those movies. And then you have a prisoner that comes in, and he is such a dominating, powerful personality and persuader of good that the attitude of the whole prison changes because of one man. And they start doing good instead of evil. They start being responsive instead of unresponsive. Instead of glum and hate-filled, they become friendly. And things go better. That is amazing. <clears throat> would that we could all have that kind of influence wherever we might be. That things would start looking up. That we would have such a personality and such a desire to be like God, that that would show, and we would be positive and not negative, giving and loving and serving in attitude and deed, both. Here's something to shoot for. See why God tells us to look to our fathers? Out of the twelve sons, Joseph is a direct father, one chosen out of the twelve, and he happens to be our father. Do we want to be like Dad? This is quite an involved story, and God uses quite a bit of space to cover it. And that's for us, because God has chosen to put most of the end-time church within Joseph, and even most of it within Ephraim, as we now understand. But we'll get to that a little later on. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the eternal was with him, and that which he did, the eternal made it to prosper. 
So like Potiphar, stopped worrying about anything, didn't even man didn't count his money, didn't count his flocks and herds. He didn't worry about anything because Joseph was there. Joseph gets kicked out because of his wife, or Potiphar's wife, and goes to prison, and then pretty soon the prison warden's out fishing because he doesn't have anything to worry about anymore. Joseph's in charge of the prison. <laughs> Incredible story. This would make a really good movie done right, wouldn't it, according to how it's written here? It came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, God has been working a purpose here all through Joseph's life. Loved and hated, loved and hated, sold, put in prison. Now, he was the servant of Potiphar, the king's guard, head of the military. But now we're going to ratchet this thing up a little bit. Now he's going to come to attention not of just the captain of the guard, but of Pharaoh himself. So God is working something out. He has a purpose all along. Now, did Joseph always see that purpose? I don't know. <coughs> Might have been hard at times. But he always rose above it, whatever it was. So these two, the butler and the baker, had offended the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was angry against two of his officers, those two, and he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. So Potiphar was the captain of the guard, and this is the prison that he oversaw, but he had somebody under him, I'm sure, who was the warden that Joseph worked with. So just as he had been in Potiphar's house, he was in the prison. <clears throat> so they put him in there where Joseph was bound, or locked up, and the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. Since you're in charge of everything else, here are two of the king's servants. I want to put you in charge of them too. And he served them, and they continued the season in the ward. So Joseph served these guys whom Pharaoh had kicked out and put in prison. He took care of them. He must have been somebody who had a real desire and urge to help other people. Uh, I don't know who you'd look at today, uh, somebody like Mother Teresa, I guess, uh, who was revered by the world because she had such a giving attitude. There are a lot of other people who have giving attitudes, but she reached a certain level of fame. But he must have been one of those people who just are, by personality, desirous of serving, helping, and giving to others. An attitude God wants us to have, but which we probably, as individuals, don't have as much as Joseph did. So we have to work on it to live up to this standard. Incredible attitude. He could have looked down on them and despised them, said, hell, Pharaoh kicked you out. I'm in charge of this prison now. Polish my boots. Wasn't his attitude. He was there to help and give and do what he could. <clears throat> okay. Verse 5, And they dreamed a dream, both of them. Don't know how long they were there. Each man his dream, and one night, each man according to the interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. So here were two 
ungodly men, idol worshippers, unconverted, we might say, uh, totally pagan. And they had what? A dream that turns out to be a dream from God. Sometimes we can be a little narrow-minded, I think, and we don't understand always God's purposes. But God doesn't just give dreams to his prophets. He doesn't just give dreams to those with whom he is working in a sonship relationship, a friendship relationship. You might remember in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that were very powerful dreams that Daniel interpreted for him, but he was just a Gentile king, mostly with a bad attitude and a very uh, pretentious, arrogant type of person. Not anybody that was fuzzy and lovable by any means, Nebuchadnezzar. Your head could go off just like that with him. And yet God gave Nebuchadnezzar some dreams because they fit in with God's purposes and even called Nebuchadnezzar my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he didn't serve God in the sense that he loved God, obeyed God, knew God, or anything else. But he was someone who fulfilled some of God's purposes. And God used just a carnal Gentile king to do that. And he did with this butler and baker as well. So we have seen some things recently where we think God may be working with a man to accomplish some things, but he's carnal, he's pretentious, he's arrogant at times, he has a show of humility, but he can be also be very proud and boastful and egocentric, and sometimes very, very difficult to deal with. But so what? If God has chosen him to do a certain thing, he can work through unconverted people to accomplish his purposes. He has many times in the past, and here is a good example of it. So these two absolutely carnal, bad servants of the king, I don't know what they had done, but whatever it was, it put them in bad enough favor that they wound up in prison at his whim. So they weren't the best servants probably on earth at that point, were they, to be sent to prison. But God used them, as we're going to see here in just a moment. <clears throat> Joseph came into them in the morning and looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? Well, there's a friendly, approachable way to deal with people. Here were some despised servants put in prison, but Joseph had an attitude of, you know, what's wrong? How can I help? What's going on? You guys don't look so hot today. Cheer up. What's the problem? Incredible attitude. Incredible personality. And he asked Pharaoh's office, oh, wait, let's see, why do you look so sad? And they said to him, we've dreamed a dream and there's no interpreter. <laughs> we dream this dream, we don't know what to make of it, but we're confused, frustrated, sad. It was obvious from the look on their face and their attitude. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Well, he didn't know God, but he did. Tell me them, I pray you. Let me know. I'm 
I know God. Uh, maybe I can help you. The chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, a vine was before me. And in the vine were three branches. And it was as though it budded, and her blossoms shot forth, and the clusters thereof brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Now what if somebody had just related this dream to you? How would you react? How would you respond? And how would you interpret it? I saw this vine, and there were three branches. Ooh, what could that mean? We'd have trouble, you know, trying to make sense of it, wouldn't we? Just like they were. But God was working with Joseph, this slave prisoner, and had a, something in mind. Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. Now this makes a lot of sense when you read it. But to any of us who heard a dream like that, it wouldn't have made any sense at all. We'd have come up with some tea leaf explanation maybe. Here's the answer. The three branches are three days. Who would have guessed? Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up your head and restore you into your place, and you shall deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when you were his butler. Simple explanation. But think on me when it shall be well with you, and show kindness, I pray you, to me, and make mention of me to Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. I want out of this prison. He was not really happy being there. You and I would not be either. But he was making the best of it that he possibly could anyway. That didn't mean he enjoyed being there. Sometimes you just have to make the best of a bad situation. Not be brought down by it, but do the best you can under the circumstances you find yourself in. Now remember all the circumstances he is in, God brought upon him. Almighty God in heaven who loves human beings and made them brought this trouble on Joseph, a man whom he highly favored and loved and chose to be the leader of Israel. And he brought all this down on him. So when things are looking bad, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're out of favor with God. Now we need always to examine ourselves when we find we have trouble and see what we need to learn and what we need to change, how we need to grow. I mean, that's what trouble, trials, and tribulation are for, is to perfect us, to mature us, to strengthen us, to make us responsible. So we need to always look at adverse conditions and see what we can learn. And I'm sure that's what Joseph was doing. He was trying to do the very best he could, even though things were down. But notice he still believed in God, trusted in God, and immediately said, God can interpret this, and he's going to use me to do it. So even under terrible circumstances, he still maintained that faith, that trust, that attitude that God is with me. Now we're going to see some very, very serious times in the next months and years. We're going to do a work for God in very troublous times, Daniel 9 says, building Jerusalem back. In troublous times. Will we fear? Will we worry? Will we give up and quit? Or can we endure what will seem like very difficult times? 
out of work, out of money, out of hope, out of opportunity maybe, hated, animosity, government coming against us, neighbors not liking us, all kinds of things are going to come down to us. I guess if you'd wanted to look at it that way, you could have said, if you were Joseph, things are pretty bleak. God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. Why am I here doing what I'm doing? It'd be real easy, wouldn't it? But here was a chance. So says, I've told you this dream, and you're going to go back into Pharaoh's house. Hey, remember me? I'm out here. I want out of here, and I've been nice to you. For indeed, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. I didn't do anything wrong. And when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, said, hey, this guy's getting his job back. He's going to be in favor. I'm going to tell him my dream. He, he got really hopeful, got excited. Oh, man, this guy's going back. Here's my dream. Listen. He said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and behold, I had three white baskets, or baskets full of holes on my head is what my margin says. And in the uppermost basket, there was of all manner of baked meats, baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. And he was probably real hopeful and sitting there smiling and saying, that's the story, now give me the good news. Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days, just like the three branches were three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up your head. He told the uh, other one he'll lift up your head, meaning he'll write, bring you out of here and look to your head again. This was a totally different way of lifting up your head. And shall hang you on a tree. <laughs> that sort of stretches your neck and lifts your head. And shall hang you on a tree, and the bird shall eat your flesh from off you. I suspect that he got even sadder now. And it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. Every birthday mentioned in the Bible that was observed as a birthday, party, selfish thing for people. In every case, somebody died. John the Baptist, uh, Job's children, and here. So he made a feast to all his servants on his birthday. What does a birthday celebration tell you, really? I'm important. This is all about me. This is my day. Everybody have a party and worship, uh, adulate, look up to me. It breeds selfishness is what it does. And vanity and ego. And that's essentially why we don't do it. Plus, in the Bible... Uh, you have very negative things associated with birthdays. So on Pharaoh's birthday, he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he gave the cup to Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker. They did birthday parties a little different then. Uh, I mean, you know, you could have food and wine and, and good things, but for the main entertainment of the day, you hang somebody as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. Remember me to Pharaoh, tell him I didn't do anything wrong, here's my story, you're going back, you're going to be right there with the Pharaoh every day, tell him about me, tell him my story, help me get out of here, 
Then he sat there, no word at all. I don't know how long that went on, didn't hear anything. He'd been forgotten. Didn't Christ have that same experience with people often? He'd heal them. Wouldn't even say thank you. Hey, I'm feeling good. I'm going to go party or whatever. Didn't even bother to thank him. One out of ten did in one case. It's so easy to forget the good that has been done for us. And then we go on to other things. Came to pass at the end of two full years. He's probably expecting, well, maybe the butler will remember. Maybe he'll remember. Two full years more he sat there. The Pharaoh dreamed. Oh, God knew exactly what he was doing. He had used Joseph in his pitiful conditions he was in. Joseph had kept his attitude up, doing the best he could to serve God under those circumstances. <coughs> and behold, he stood by the river in this dream. And behold, there came up out of the river seven well-favored cattle, fat cattle, and they fed in a meadow, beautiful setting. And behold, seven other cattle came up after them out of the river, really skinny and lean flesh with the ribs all showing, and stood by the other cattle upon the edge of the river. And the skinny cows did eat up the seven fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up. Well, that's a strange dream, isn't it? If you had it, what would you be thinking? That's weird. And he slept and dreamed the second time. And behold, seven ears of corn came up on one stalk, really lush-looking, full kernels, really good-looking corn. And behold, seven thin ears, and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven fat full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. How does corn eat corn? I don't know, but dreams are dreams, and sometimes they make weird connections. But there was a reason for this connection. It came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. It was a, such a strange dream that he, he was having trouble adjusting to it. Woke up feeling funny. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof, Pharaoh told him his dream. This sounds like the book of Daniel, doesn't it? But there was none that could interpret them to Pharaoh. It's just a silly dream, Pharaoh. I, you know, I can't make heads or tails out of it. Ah, then spoke the chief butler to Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Oh, I forgot Joseph. <laughs> Two years. I forgot the guy. And this situation reminded him. Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in ward, so he recounts the story, and the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream, and one night, I and he, or it should be he and I for English, uh, we dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was there, I almost forgot, I did forget, there was there a Hebrew servant to the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams, to each man according to his dream he did interpret. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored to my office, and him he hanged. 
The dreams worked out, the interpretation worked out, and they came true. Now, God could have done this in a matter of days or weeks, couldn't he? It's not the way he works. Things come out one thing at a time, one thing at a time. There are often gaps. Even in this little group, I have noticed a pretty consistent pattern. Seems like every two and a half, three years, we have a move forward. Things open up in a different way. A chance to do something different. A growth spurt. I don't mean in people, but a growth in direction and focus and understanding and doctrine and, and the various things that God has laid before us that he says need done. And sometimes it seems like nothing's happening. And then you'll have a move forward. Now, isn't that the parallel we see here in Joseph's life? One thing happens, then he's a prisoner for a while, then something else happens, I mean a slave, and then a, in prison, in two full years, just because the guy forgot about him. But it was a critical moment, a specific thing that triggered that memory. God had chosen this period, two full years later, to make a move forward in Joseph's life. He was teaching him things, he was learning, he was handling adversity, and then God would move him forward. So the story is so very real for us. Sometimes it thinks we think things aren't happening and then we get bored or we get impatient or we get sidetracked or whatever. But God is working this thing out. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has specific things to be done at specific times by specific people. I kid you not. And some may get hanged along the way or whatever. But at a particular moment when Pharaoh would be tuned in was when this guy remembered. Because Pharaoh needed to do something for Joseph in Joseph's view, and ultimately in God's view. So just the right moment came after two years, and this man's memory was jogged by the circumstance, and Pharaoh was all ears at that moment, because nobody else could tell him. He needed somebody. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They brought him hastily out of the dungeon. Hurry up, go get that boy out of the prison. I want to talk to him. And he shaved himself and changed his clothes and came in to Pharaoh. He was probably, the Egyptians tended to be clean-shaven, I guess, and he wasn't shaving while in prison, so he had several years' growth on his face. And uh, his clothes probably weren't all that great either in prison. So he quickly got himself looking good and came in. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there's nobody that can interpret it. And I have heard say of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. I don't know whether you'd have enough trust and faith in God at that moment called on the carpet, uh, knowing that if you interpreted it correctly, you could probably live and do well. And if you didn't interpret it correctly, the king's anger might turn on you and you might die. That's the way it was with Nebuchadnezzar, remember. Uh, could have happened here. Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. I can't do it. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He hadn't even heard the dream yet, but he said, God will give you an answer of peace. 
He knew that God was with him. I, I suspect the man had prayed a lot while he was in prison, don't you? Pharaoh said to him, Joseph, in my dream, behold, I stood on the bank of the river, and behold, there came up out of the river seven cattle, fat-fleshed and well-favored, and they fed in a meadow. Beautiful pastoral scene. And behold, seven other cattle came up after them, poor and skinny and lean flesh, such as I never saw in all the land of Egypt for badness. These are the worst-looking cows I ever saw in my entire life. And the lean and the ill-favored cattle did eat up the first seven cattle, or fat cat cattle, and when they had eaten them up, it could not be known that they had eaten them. But they were still skinny, as at the beginnings. Now, how does a skinny cow eat a fat cow and still remain just as skinny as it was before. <laughs> Strange connections and dreams. I mean, you know, snake swallows a rat. He looks fatter. Didn't happen here. And I saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good, and behold, seven ears withered thin, and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. The thin ears devoured the seven good ears. And I told this to the magicians, but there was none that could declare it to me. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. You had two separate events, but it all is one. God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now God says in Amos 3, 7, 8, that he doesn't do anything except that he warns by his servants the prophets. Now God isn't doing anything in this age, right now, but he hasn't written down for us to understand and grasp if we but have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. So the story is the same as today. It's the same as it was in Amos' day. God is not going to do anything unless he shows us what he is about to do. And God has favored us, brethren, by letting us understand many things that others simply do not understand not because we are important or better than anybody else, but because he has a job for us to do, a preparatory work for what comes ahead. And if you're going to be there ahead of time, you have to know ahead of time what's coming. It's very simple. So if Joseph was going to be involved in this, and he was, then God had to let him know what was coming about so he'd know what to do about it. God has always worked that way. The seven good cows are seven years. It wasn't three days this time. This was seven years. How would you know the difference? Except that unless God inspired you and put the thoughts into your mind to be able to understand what it's talking about. The seven good years are seven years. The dream is one. The seven thin and ill-favored cattle that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I've spoken to Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showed to Pharaoh. Why did he show Pharaoh? Why didn't he just show Joseph? Well, he showed Pharaoh, who was a carnal king, didn't know God, worshipped false gods, worshipped the devil. The whole world is deceived by Satan the devil. There are very, very few people on this planet, most of them within what was the worldwide church of God, who know the true God. The rest of the world think they know God, but they worship the devil. 
Christ put it that way. You worship, you know not what. You think you worship the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God in heaven, but he said you don't. You worship your father, the devil. Now, those must have been hard words for those Jews to hear from Christ. But it was absolutely true. And most of the people on this earth who think they worship God do not even know God. They only know Satan the devil. They don't know him as Satan. They look upon him as an angel of light. They think he is God. And the whole world is going to worship the beast and the one that stands behind the beast, Satan the devil. Scary times that they can be deceived that badly, isn't it? But he showed Pharaoh. Well, what was his purpose? Why not just show Joseph and let him do his thing? Because Pharaoh was in charge of Egypt, and this thing was going to happen in Egypt. And God wanted Joseph to work under Pharaoh, just as he wanted Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to work under the kings of their day. We're going to see the same kind of situation today when one who is perhaps not a king as such, but is in the position of leadership in certain ways, a Cyrus that God is going to send. Isaiah 44 and 45 are very clear on that. Who that is may need to be determined, or it may already have been determined. We may know at this point. I'm not absolutely sure of that, but it appears that way. So we're in the same kind of a circumstance where God has allowed someone else and led him, when this comes down, whether this is a man or not that we're talking about, it is going to become obvious that God has led him and broken the bars of brass and the bars of iron and led him to see the riches that God is going to use to do his end-time work. Carnal, unconverted man who does not know God. Doesn't realize he worships Satan the devil. But he does. Whoever the man is. He doesn't know the true God. Knows of him. Pharaoh knew of Joseph's God after this. Nebuchadnezzar knew of Daniel's, Ezra's and Nehemiah's God, but didn't really know him. He did say, you know, your God is the real God. Worship him. Do what you need to do. But he didn't begin to worship him. That may be the case here in the end time as well. I don't know exactly how that will work out, but that is the pattern of the past. So God showed Pharaoh some things, and he used Joseph to let the man know what they meant. Let's see how the story plays out. What God is about to do, he showed to Pharaoh. Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. And the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of the famine following, for it shall be very grievous. It'll be like the fat years just got swallowed up. When it's famine, pestilence, terrible times, you forget the good times. And that's exactly what the dream meant. And for that the dream was doubled to Pharaoh twice. He saw two dreams, but it's one meaning. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So when God emphasizes something a second time, it shows importance 
And it can also show timing, immediacy. <coughs> the things that we are now reading about are going to happen very shortly. Because remember what God said, though it tarry, wait for it, it won't be long, it's going to happen in the book of Habakkuk. It's going to come soon. So as many times as God says that throughout the prophecies, what is about to happen now is going to happen very soon. You see, he's given us knowledge of it now. And once, he re once you receive that knowledge and understand the portent, when you understand the importance, the immediacy, it is not far off. It's very close. So Joseph understood how God does things and that the fact that it was doubled meant that it truly is coming from God and it will happen very fast. Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. He didn't say, I don't want to go back to prison, why don't you put me in charge? He, he used wisdom here and he used tact and diplomacy. Now, I'm sure that the thoughts might have been going through his mind. I know God is using me. He's put me through an awful lot to teach me some things. He's blessed me at times. And now he's brought me here to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. So he must have understood that God had a use for him. I mean, it penetrated his head. But he was very tactful and very diplomatic and unselfish in the way that he approached it. He just put it out there for God and Pharaoh to deal with. He didn't try to become a deacon. He didn't try to become an elder. He didn't foment and wish and have an attitude. He left things in God's hands. He was not a social climber. He was not a government climber. He wasn't a boot polisher or a backside kisser. He just let God handle things and did the job that he had before him the very best way he knew how. That was his approach. It's the kind of approach we should have. Serve, give, do anything we can, have the right attitude, be positive, go forward. Don't be one of those that's always negative, oh, this won't work out, or this must be wrong, or blah, 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 blah. No. We do as the Bereans. We prove whether these things are so, not whether they are not so. We always maintain a positive approach and attitude as we search for the answer. Anytime somebody starts saying, well, I don't see how that could be. Their mind is not really open, and they're not approaching it in a godly fashion. Well, I don't know. Now, isn't it much more pleasant to say, well, I don't really know, but I'm going to go find out, and I'm going to be positive about this, and maybe there's something good happening here. That's the attitude we should approach things from, not one of, oh, I don't know about that. It's just a wrong approach. It's not a godly approach. Prove whether it is so, not whether it ain't so. That's just different ways human beings approach things. One is far more pleasant than the other. And if you prove it's not so, then you turn and you do something else. But you remain a, in positive, uplifting attitude through the whole thing while you do it. 
learn something today that would be very, very controversial. It is when people hear about it. And most of them reject it immediately. Because what you're not up on, you're down on. And without even examining or checking it out or studying it through, they say that can't be and just reject it. Wrong attitude. The right attitude is to say, hmm, that's interesting. That could be quite important if it's true and very, very unimportant if it's not true. So I'll check it all out and I'll find out. I'll look into it. I'll find out, look into it carefully. Isn't that what we did when we heard that we might have been doing Passover wrong for decades? Somebody brought something up and said, this looks like should be different. I didn't say, oh, wait a minute. God led Herbert Armstrong to see this, and that's the way we've done it for decades. The Church of God can't be right. God couldn't have allowed Mr. Armstrong to do something wrong like he did on Pentecost for those decades. Oops, sorry, that slipped out. No, the right approach, and I think most of us here took it, was, all right, let's start looking in the Scriptures and see what we can find. Is it true or not true? I didn't reject it and say, oh, you've got to be wrong. That cannot be. I said, I'll look at it. I'll examine it. I went through every Scripture I could find in the Bible. Anywhere. Found some that I hadn't noticed before that made connections to prove whether it was so or not. Not to reject, not to say it can't be, and then start looking for a couple of places that it might, I might to prove it wrong. No, I was checking it out to see if it was right, not to see if it was wrong. If that's the way God wants us to approach things. Is it right? If we find it's not right, we can reject it. But we don't have to be in a bad attitude while we're researching it. That isn't necessary. Why be in a bad attitude if you don't have to be? Turns out it's wrong, you turn, go a different direction. If what we're doing now turns out to be wrong, we'll head a different direction. But I am going to positively seek and find out until I know for sure one way or another. Then it will be proved one way or the other. But I'm not going to go into it holding back like a backsliding heifer trying to find fault, trying to find holes in the story. I'm going to approach it positively and see if it be so, not if it ain't so. So that was Joseph's approach. That's what we should be working toward. Uh, so he said, Now therefore let Pharaoh, verse 33, look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Save back 20% of the crop. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come. And lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. He says, hey, you're going to have seven years of real good. You better get somebody over this that can take care of it and be sure that there's plenty to eat because bad years are coming. I think that's an approach we need to have right now. We know bad times are coming. We need to get as ready as we can for it because God may let us go through part of it, and things might get fairly grim. Now we're on the edge of it, brethren. 
Now isn't the time to start worrying and fretting. I have heard in sermons all my life that when Israel came out of Egypt, they went through the first few plagues along with the Egyptians. And it was always expounded, preached, and promised that someday, when things come down, whether it be 1972 or 82 or whenever it was going to be, in our limited view, we always expected that we would go through some hard times along with the rest of the people until God delivered us from it. Right? Isn't that what you always heard? I heard that for decades. And now we're on the edge of things coming down in a big way, food becoming expensive, and finally becoming scarce, and finally becoming essentially non-existent in our nation. Money becoming more worthless until it's finally thrown in the streets. Now, will God let us go through some of the trouble to test us, to try us, to increase our understanding, to see how we'll react or whether we'll give up on him. Remember Abraham? Now I know you would have killed your son because I asked you to. God may try us when this thing hits in full force in the next weeks, months, maybe a few years. We may go through some of it. We need to be prepared, both in our larders. I don't mean we ought to put lard up, but where you keep your food. And we need to be prepared spiritually in attitude to go through whatever part of it God may cause us to go through. Now, we've been preparing, haven't we, for years laying up food, laying up the staples. We may not have Doritos every day from some point, you know, spicy ones at that. But we may have bread and milk and meat and carrots and things that we need and eggs because we've been preparing and getting ready for the trouble that is to come. We've moved out of the city where they're going to be killing each other over a rat that might be caught. And we're out here where we can have food that we can raise ourselves and that which we've stored up to go with it. So even as Joseph recommended, we've known trouble was coming. We've been preparing ourselves, and God may let us go through some of it. We'll finish the story and find out how much Jacob and his sons and Israel went through it. So he says, get ready, keep food in the cities, that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of all his servants. Man, that sounds like a good idea. If, it, if that dream's right, we better get ready. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Where can we find a man like that, the kind of man Joseph's talking about? Pharaoh said to Joseph, For as much as God has showed you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as you are. 
made a connection God wanted him to make. You shall be over my house, and according to your word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. You are the second man in all the land of Egypt, in charge of everything except the throne I sit on. That was quite a promotion from the guy that kind of helped take care of the prisoners. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand. That ring was a signet, bore the stamp of Pharaoh, and he just handed it to Joseph and said, Anything you stamp is done. You're in charge. And arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. <clears throat> and he made him ride in the second chariot which he had, Air Force Two. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. So when his chariot would go through the land, someone was going ahead of him saying, Bow the knee before Joseph. Show honor and respect to this man wherever he goes. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without you shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. I am making a pharaohic decree here that nobody moves a hand or a foot to do anything except that unless you direct what they do. You are the man in charge. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Pianea. I prefer Joseph personally means a revealer of secrets or the man to whom secrets are revealed. So he gave him a new name. And he gave him to wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. I don't know if I'd have wanted somebody named after Potipharah or Potiphar or that type of name after what I'd been through or not, but her name was Asenath. So he got a wife out of the deal too. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, this whole thing had taken from the time he was 17 when he was sold by his brothers until he was 30 years old. So that's 23 years from the time that he became a slave until he got out of prison and was put over all of Egypt. 23 years is 30. Am I doing bad math here? 30 years old. He was 17 when he went there. Well, 17 years. Huh? 13. We'll get it right. 13 years this took. Okay. Boy, it seemed like a long time. I'm trying to think and talk at the same time and do remedial math. It, it can't happen. That's three things. Uh, you, get, you gals are four things. You gals can, can multitask. Anyway... Thirteen years later, he was made the second guy in charge. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by hands full. <coughs> I imagine he wanted to go all over the land of Egypt at that point. Not only to oversee, but he'd been in prison so long it was such a relief to get out and get in a chariot. And, Man, I'm going somewhere. It's not just four walls anymore. 
He gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. <clears throat> I, I think we're doing, in a sense, that right now. God has given us an awful lot of knowledge and understanding of what is about to happen so that we can help prepare the way for it. And we stored it up on tape. It's on the Internet. Well, it was till it went down the other day, but it'll be back up. That spiritual food and understanding is on tape for anybody who wants to see it, to listen to it, to hear it, and to respond to it. And most will not. I do not expect any major growth of any kind at this point. It will come probably later if we do our part, but not now. So don't expect that until the time is absolutely right. But it is laid up there for any who has ears to hear. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, lots of corn, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. Seven years of absolute plenty, and he just hoard the corn, lay it up, put it in bins, cover it, whatever he could do to put it away. It was a great building project, I'm sure, that went on with that as well. Corn you can't just lay out on the ground. You have to make silos, bins, some way to protect it from the weather, from theft, and so on. So a great building program as well as tremendous farm production. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. So in the seven fat years he had two fine sons, which Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. <coughs> Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, Manasseh came first. Ephraim later was named the firstborn in Jeremiah 31 by God as the firstborn of all the sons, but he also supplanted his older brother Manasseh as the firstborn in God's view. So Great Britain came first, Manasseh, but God has supplanted Great Britain with Ephraim. We'll hear more about Ephraim and Manasseh a little later on, particularly Ephraim, because there's a lot in the prophecies about Ephraim. And since God chose to bring us, this nation, through Joseph, through that tribe, and then through Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, they are two important key figures for us to understand, not only in history, but in prophecy, because they relate to us directly today. So... Manasseh was born first, note that. He came into existence first. Ephraim followed, but became greater. Uh, For God, says he, has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So Manasseh meant, I've forgotten all the trouble that has brought me to the place I am today. He looked upon it as an answer to prayer and named his son answer to prayer in that sense. Forget the toil, forget the trouble, forget the tribulation. Now, how does God put it in Isaiah? He says, we'll turn our, our fasts of sorrow over the trouble that we've gone through will be turned to peace of joy. He says that the fir trees will blossom. You know, everything, the rose, the rose will blossom, Isaiah 35. The fir tree will bring up uh, limbs instead of thorns and so on like we've had before in Isaiah 55. On and on it goes, showing that things will change and you'll forget all that you've been through. And he uses the analogy even of a woman who bears down and bears down to have a child, and then suddenly when that son is laying in her arms, she forgets the pain she just went through. doesn't take too long to forget the pain 
over the joy of a child being born and held in your own arms. <clears throat> so, he reminded himself every day that he would call Manasseh to himself. It would remind him that his toil was over. The name of the second called he Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And Ephraim actually means double fruit, the eem on the end, twin or double. Double fruit was Ephraim. And we'll see how that plays out in the end time when we get down to an analysis of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the seven years of plenteousness that was in land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth or drought began to come, according as Joseph had said. And the dearth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all lands. I suspect that the population of the earth was still pretty well centralized in what later would become the promised land, and not too far distant in the area so that all peoples could come and buy grain in Egypt. Well, we're out of time, and we come down to chapter 42, so let's pick it up there next time I speak.